Last week, I happened to mention, just by way of illustration, the Roman Civil War. I thought today, by way of introduction, I would expand on that. Julius Caesar became Roman consul in 59 BC. He was like the CEO of the Roman Republic, the Senate. It's like the board of directors. But these consuls had a one-year term limit, so he served for a year in power, and then he was done. He went off to Gaul, which is like modern-day France, where he commanded four legions in battle and pretty much conquered France and Britain. Became a hero of the people and a legend to the legions. But the leaders of Rome were growing weary of Caesar's growing power. And his old friend turned enemy, Pompey, along with the Senate, they decided they had enough. They wanted Caesar to return to Rome to disband his army, at which point they were going to prosecute him for some perceived crimes. If Caesar complied and returned to Rome without his army, he would have been persecuted, jailed, at best, marginalized with no more political future. So instead, he decided to return to Rome with his army. And that was a big deal. The law stated that no general could bring his army within the borders of the main Roman province, which is pretty much like modern-day Italy. The boundary between Rome in the south and Gaul in the north was the Rubicon River. For any leader to cross this boundary with an army was an act of civil war. Well, on January 10th, 49 BC, Caesar led his army to cross the Rubicon. He was invading his own country and starting a civil war. And at the moment he crossed that river, he knew it was a point of no return. Caesar understood the magnitude of the action. It's recorded as saying, the die is cast as he crossed the river. And he knew this was it. Either he marched on Rome at that point and succeeded, or he would certainly be executed for treason. But there's no going back now that the deed was done when they crossed that river. You can probably guess things turned out okay for Caesar. We all know his name. He went on to become emperor, the new Roman Empire. But this moment was pivotal. It was a turning point for the whole republic. Caesar crossing the Rubicon was this quintessential point of no return. Now, just with that idea of a point of no return in mind, have you ever wondered if it applies with God? In other words, does God have a point of no return? Does God have a line for us that if you cross, there's no turning back? In our relationship with God, can you sin so much or so greatly that God can no longer forgive you? Some people sin in big ways. Can God forgive murder? Yes, we know he can, but how many? What if someone commits 10 murders or 100 or genocide? Like, is there a limit? Is there a point of no return for God? Most people assume that's the case for someone like Hitler, for example. You should know that scripture portrays God as being incredibly forgiving. That God can and does forgive all manner of sins, but we're actually going to learn today that God does have a line in the sand. That there is such a thing as a point of no return with God. It is possible for people to get beyond the hope of reconciliation with God. This is a hard subject to understand and accept, but there's no denying it, especially since it comes so clearly from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. I'm talking about what some might label an unpardonable sin, or as Jesus himself called it, an eternal sin. This is a sin from which there's no forgiveness. It might shock you to hear that, 
At the same time, I find that most Christians, they're at least familiar with this vague concept called the unpardonable sin. But I think few understand it rightly. This, this text of scripture, I think, for most people, sits at the intersection of familiarity and ignorance. They've heard about this unforgivable sin, but they'd be hard-pressed to define it clearly. I don't really know what it means. There's confusion around it and much fear. Many a young Christian has been plagued wondering if they, unbeknownst to them, have just gone a little too far and sinned too much and have crossed this line with God and now they can't be forgiven. Where is this point of no return with God? And if it really exists, like, wouldn't you want to know? Yes, we we would want to know. I think we need to know. And hopefully we're going to bring some clarity to this issue this morning as, as it's the focus of our text, Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. So you can open your Bibles there now, this morning. This is one of the benefits. We're preaching through the Bible verse by verse. We're, just, we're not allowed to skip these hard passages. This is one of them. We've actually saved it for today, Matthew 12, 31, 32. You wouldn't want to mishandle a venomous snake because it could cause you great harm. You would treat it carefully. And likewise, you don't want to mishandle this critical passage of Scripture. Many have done so, and it, it causes spiritual harm. That's why it needs our full attention. We saved it from last week just for today for a special treatment. That said, this text does not exist in a vacuum. It is vitally connected to its context, so we've got to repeat a little bit of that context. Now here in Matthew, we continue to see Jesus teach, preach, heal. Just recently, he was delivering this demon-possessed blind man. The crowds were amazed, rightly so. We found them back in verse 23, wondering, Could this Jesus be the son of David? Jesus didn't fit the mold of the political Messiah they were expecting, but he performed so many signs and wonders, how could he not be the Messiah? The people were well on their way to making the right conclusion about Jesus. That is until they, they hit the brick wall of the religious leaders. The religious power brokers did not believe in Jesus. They saw all the same signs and wonders that he performed. But in total hardness of heart, they could not accept the fact that he came from God because Jesus was against them. It's like every time he opened his mouth, it was, it was a repudiation of their system, their authority. This Jesus had to go. And so we saw it even a couple weeks ago, back in verse 14, where the Pharisees, for the first time, resolved to kill Jesus. They're, they're like, murder is the last way, the only way left to get rid of Jesus. But the time isn't right for that quite yet, so they begin with slander. That's what we saw last time in Matthew 12. But really, more than slander, the religious leaders spread some outrageous accusations about Jesus. Even though everyone just witnessed him cast this demon out of this man, curing him of his blindness and muteness, the Pharisees had the audacity to claim, verse 24, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Everyone knew this was a work of God, but they claimed it was a work of the devil. To them, Jesus was not the son of God. He's he's more like a child of Satan. So yeah, I'd say that's a pretty serious accusation. We saw Jesus responded defending himself, as verses 25 through 30 from last week, where he issues this threefold rebuttal to their ludicrous claims. Now, this response actually continues right into verses 31, 32 for this morning. But here, though, we see Jesus make his own charge. They they leveled a charge against him. Now he's got a charge 
for them. He warns them as they're essentially dancing right on the edge of a cliff. Let's go ahead and read now Matthew 12, 31 and 32. His response continues. He says, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So you can see in this text, Jesus seems to reveal that there is this unpardonable sin. But he doesn't elaborate. And that's left Christians ever since to, to wonder, like, what, what exactly is it? And many have been left to live in fear, anxious that they've crossed this invisible line with God. That idea at least resonates with most Christians, which is why we, we take a special interest in these verses. And of primary importance is this, this phrase, you know, blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. In the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus adding, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This just spawns so many questions. Like, what exactly does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And how is that different from blaspheming the Son of Man? And why why is that forgivable, but blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not forgivable? Is this like a one-time sin, a line in the sand, or is this more of a heart condition? Are we stating that God cannot forgive or that he simply will not forgive? Like, is this sin like forgivable? It's just that God chooses to not forgive these people. So many questions abound. This text has the answers, but they don't come easy. We're going to have to interrogate this text, kind of like a witness in an investigation, but I think we can make it talk. And so we're going to, our, our goal this, this morning to, to get to the bottom of this is to ask these nine critical questions to ask and, and find answers to nine critical questions of this, this text, this subject, just to help us understand that the nature, the true nature of this unpardonable sin, and beyond that, it's the nature of God's forgiveness. We're going to go after these nine critical questions. Look, it's going to be a lot. You can't handle something like this in kind of a, a superfluous way, but just remember, if if you want to go to the barbecue after, you have to listen to the whole thing. So you're, you're just kind of stuck. All right, let's go to these nine questions first. First question, what sins are not unforgivable? Now, it's a double negative, but what sins are not unforgivable? It's good to just get some options off the table right away. Like the unforgivable sin, it's not the same thing as unbelief. Unbelief can be forgiven. Some people like to say just offhand that, that this sin, it's a person's ultimate final rejection of Jesus. It's, it's the sin of unbelief at death. And it is true that whoever dies without Christ at that point will not be forgiven. But at that point, all of their sins become unforgivable. And this does not account for the unforgivable sin being blasphemy against the Spirit and not blasphemy against the Son of Man. So that the unforgivable sin is something distinct from just dying in unbelief. Now, it's not murder. King David participated in murder. He was forgiven. It's not adultery or homosexuality or theft. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 makes clear that all types of sin can be forgiven by the Lord. It's not even denying Jesus. 
Peter, you recall his vehement threefold denial of the Lord. He was swearing that he did not know him. He was forgiven and restored. The unforgivable sin is not even murdering Jesus. Even on the cross, while being executed, remember Christ says in Luke 23, Father, forgive them to his executioners. It was even possible for those who crucified Jesus to be forgiven. Like, that's pretty extreme. Keep this in mind, though. You recall when Jesus prayed for his executioners to be forgiven, it was not unqualified. The full statement was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That they acted in ignorance. That does not mean they were without guilt. No, they were still guilty. But Scripture consistently teaches that high-handed rebellion against God is far more egregious than sins committed in ignorance. The Apostle Paul himself was first Saul. He was a violent persecutor of the church. But he says about himself regarding his conversion in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Those who rebel after the power of God has been revealed to them by the Spirit cannot claim such ignorance. This, I think, gives us already a first big clue that the unpardonable sin cannot be committed in ignorance. File that away. We'll see it confirmed as we go, but whatever it is, the unpardonable sin cannot be committed in ignorance. Whatever it is, this is a high-handed sin. Secondly, what is the connection to blasphemy? Second question, what is the connection to blasphemy? A massive clue as to what this sin is, is its clear connection to blasphemy. It's not talking about any old sin. Very specifically connects it to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is blasphemy? Greek term, blasphemia. It just means to to speak evil against to bear false witness. It's often translated, it says slander. The word is used frequently in in a horizontal sense where you're speaking evil about someone else, another person, slandering them. Now, we mostly associate the word blasphemy in its like vertical sense, speaking evil about God. And this is indeed a most serious sin captured in the third of the Ten Commandments. Divine blasphemy often comes with defiant Irreverence, God, and his name are absolutely holy. So when the wicked drag his name through the mud, he is deeply offended. And such blasphemy came with the death penalty for national Israel. Leviticus 24, 16. And that being said, blasphemy is not unforgivable. God forgives blasphemers. Going back to 1 Timothy 1, 13 again, Paul says, about his conversion, he confessed that he was, he says, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet God forgave him. That's good news. Blasphemy can be forgiven. But this already leads us to believe that this blasphemy against the Spirit, it's not your run-of-the-mill blasphemy. Clearly, the unpardonable sin relates to the tongue. It has to do with something you say. But it's not just something you say. It's not this forbidden set of words that if you dare utter them, you're now, you can't be forgiven anymore. Like we we could pay someone to repeat what the Pharisees said about Jesus being of the devil. That's not going to automatically make them unforgivable. Really, the context argues that this blasphemy against the spirit, 
is in fact a sin of the heart. It gets expressed by the tongue, but where do our thoughts and words come from? The heart. Speaking of context, we we looked at a little bit the previous context, but how about what comes after? Right after this passage, Jesus, still in his response, teaches on good and bad trees, which are made known by good and bad fruit. And he says this, the Pharisees in mind, verse 34, a couple verses after, one of his favorite terms for them, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So we learn we're we're really dealing with a heart issue. Blasphemy against the spirit, it's not just some forbidden phrase. It's expressed in words, but it, it comes from the heart. So I think this is a second clue to keep in mind that the unpardonable sin is ultimately a sin of the heart. This is a heart condition. It's a sin of the heart. Now, big question number three, why is blasphemy against the spirit unforgivable and not blasphemy against Jesus, right? You got to answer that. Why is blasphemy against the spirit so much worse than blasphemy against the son of man? You can see how there's something unique about this blasphemy that Jesus has in mind because it deals specifically with the Holy Spirit. It was verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. So, like, you can say terrible things about God the Father and God the Son, be forgiven. But if you say terrible things about God the Spirit, you've crossed the line. You've gone too far. You can't be forgiven. That doesn't make any sense. If we're talking about just, like, standard blasphemy. Hopefully you can already see that this sin does not involve just saying bad things about the Holy Spirit. That's not the unforgivable sin. Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the Trinity. They can be found maligning the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. That's a sin, but that's forgivable. The unpardonable sin is something else. So we still wonder, what's the connection to the Holy Spirit? You might expect the opposite. We expect Jesus to say, blasphemy against the Spirit can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Son of Man cannot be forgiven. Because all throughout the New Testament, we see the Son exalted, while the Spirit plays this behind-the-scenes role. But no, we need to be careful to state that God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, they're all equal in essence. There's only one God. There's only one divine being, divine essence. To speak evil of The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are all equally egregious sins because they're all equal in glory. There's only one God. Jesus is not suggesting that blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable because the Spirit is of greater worth than the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit are of equal worth. They're all the one God. But if this blasphemy against the Spirit does not relate to the person of the Spirit, what's left but the work of the Spirit. And that is indeed the case. You notice in the context, if you remember last week as well, the Pharisees, they never mentioned the Holy Spirit, right? They don't bring up the Holy Spirit. They didn't say anything good or bad about the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus now all of a sudden accuses them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're like, where'd you get that from? Where'd that come from? 
the only person who mentioned the Holy Spirit in context was Jesus. Go back to verse 28. From his defense, he says, verse 28, after they accuse him of casting out demons by Satan, he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus references the Spirit, not Satan, as being the true source of his authority and power. But you see, he's not talking about the person of the Spirit, but the work of the Spirit, the role of the Spirit. Jesus himself is making some distinction within the members of the Trinity when he says, like, blasphemy against the Son, that can be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Spirit. So we ask, you know, what is it that distinguishes the three members of the Trinity? It's not their divine essence, they're equal in essence and nature. But the three persons, we see them differentiate the most in their work, the role they play in relating to creation. So here's connection. The Pharisees that day, they were slandering. They were slandering not the Spirit, but the Son. They're saying bad things about Jesus, right? That he's of the devil. They're speaking the worst evil of Jesus and his work. But Jesus himself is connecting his work with the Holy Spirit's work. In talking bad about him on that day, they were talking bad about the Spirit. I think we can kind of summarize this in yet another clue. The unpardonable sin relates to the work of the Spirit. There's something about the work, the role of the Spirit that's in mind here. Not the person of the Spirit, but the work of the Spirit. And we'll turn that right into question number four. What work of the Spirit does Jesus have in mind? We're getting close, so stay with me. But what work of the Spirit does Jesus have in mind? We know that Father, Son, and Spirit differ in how they relate to the world. And so what unique role of the Spirit is being blasphemed, according to Jesus? Well, specifically, it is the work of testifying of the Son. It's the work of testifying of the Son. Verse 28, Jesus said he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. The Spirit, in turn, through that work, is testifying Jesus is of God. We know that God the Father ordains our salvation, and the Son is the one who became incarnate, took on flesh to accomplish our salvation. It was the Son, not the Father, not the Spirit, who took on flesh, died on the cross to pay for our sins. And we receive salvation by faith in Him. The Holy Spirit's role, then, is to come along and not accomplish our salvation, but to apply it. That involves many things. But one special role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness of the Son in our hearts. To testify of the Son, that He is the Christ and the Son of God. This is 1 John 5, verses 5 through 6. John says, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And he adds, it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. John 15, 26, Jesus himself said that when the Helper comes, talking about the Spirit, he says that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Like one of the Spirit's jobs. This is a big role of the Spirit, to testify that this Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. 
Now, while Jesus was on earth, how did the Spirit testify the most? We would say through signs and wonders, right? All the, the miraculous works Jesus performed, healing the sick, curing the blind, delivering the demon possessed. These works testified that he was God and came from God. That's John 5, 36. They were signs, divine proofs of his person and his salvation. But all these signs, though, Jesus attests, were performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, all these same signs and wonders, later in the New Testament, they're labeled gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? In Acts 10, 38, Jesus is described as one anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. It says he went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's the point of the signs, right? The signs were meant to to point to something. They pointed to Jesus as coming from God. His miracles were the spirit-wrought testimony that this man, Jesus, he's, he's more than a man. He's your divine Messiah. So that's in your mind. Think again about Matthew 12, this very context. In this passage, what was Jesus just doing? What did he just finish doing? Well, he was delivering and healing this man who was oppressed by a demon, made mute and blind. Jesus cast it out and healed him, and he affirms he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. That miracle was a sign, a testimony of the Holy Spirit. That This Jesus, he's, he's not just a man. He looks like a man, but he's more. He's the God-man, the divine Messiah. Again, one of the big jobs of the Holy Spirit is to testify of the Son. This work of testifying often comes with a correlated work of conviction. That the Spirit was sent to convict. John 16, verse 8. Christ says about the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There is a common grace work of the Spirit in the hearts of men, even unbelievers, where the Spirit exposes them to the light of Christ. We're not talking about new birth, but a testimony that Jesus is the Christ and a conviction of sin. This is where a sinner comes to know in their heart of hearts, this Jesus is Lord and I am a sinner under judgment. You effectively have here John chapter 3, which tells us that Jesus, the light of the world, he's come into the world. The spirit shines that light in the hearts of some people, even lost testifying and convicting. For some people, the Spirit keeps working, producing new birth. This is why 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not just verbalizing it from the heart. But not everyone is born again by the Spirit. Some receive the Spirit's testimony and they feel that conviction, but they love the darkness rather than the light. And so when the light shines, they don't run to it, they run away from it. Now, at this point, we would call that unbelief, rejection. That's forgivable. That's not the unforgivable sin. But it it can go a step further. As John 3.20 says, that there are some people who don't just reject the light, they hate it. They, They can't bear this conviction of sins they're feeling, but they're not about ready to humble themselves and repent 
And so they commit themselves to extinguishing the light. And such hatred for the light often manifests itself with slander, malice, persecution. With this in mind, I think we have enough to to make an accusation, to to connect the dots and and try and state this thing. So question five, we're just going to ask, what is the unpardonable sin? So what is it? Remember, we're actually asking a very specific question. It's really, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which Jesus says there's no unforgiveness? We have enough to connect the dots. Just start by thinking of the Pharisees in this passage. Step one, the Pharisees received the outer testimony of the Holy Spirit. They saw the signs and wonders of Jesus. They witnessed countless healings and miracles which means they saw the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit at work. The Spirit testified to them that this Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. So they received that outer testimony. Step two, it's safe to infer that they also received the inner testimony of the Spirit, based on what we've learned so far. This inner testimony includes a conviction over sin. They knew they were in the wrong. This inner testimony also includes a type of illumination. They knew the scriptures. They knew prophecy. They knew what to expect of the Messiah. And they saw all the signs in Christ. In several ways, the Spirit was shining the light of Christ in their hearts. However, step three, their response to this testimony was rejection. They rejected the undeniable conclusion that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Remember, they did so with full knowledge. They, they can't claim any ignorance here. Rather, they fully understood the implications of what they saw, but turned away from it. They wanted nothing to do with the light of the world, because in pride, they knew that would mean the end of their glory, their praise and power. Now, if we stop right here, so far we've described unbelief, hardness of heart, rejection, all of which are forgivable. But what makes for this unpardonable sin, you've got to go one more step to a step four, where they not just reject Jesus, they hated him, and with utter contempt for the Son in their hearts, they blasphemed him, slandering him and speaking evil of him. And as we learned, we're not just talking about run-of-the-mill, taking the Lord's name in vain. They went so far as to say his power came from Satan. But Jesus shows us that in blaspheming his works, they were really speaking evil of the Holy Spirit. The clear testimony of the Spirit about him, purposely misjudging that testimony to be satanic. So we can put it this way. That they, in effect, they slandered the Spirit's clear testimony that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God as satanic. And that is the unforgivable sin. That right there is the sin that will not be forgiven. That's the line in the sand. That's God's Rubicon River. When you cross that line, you have a point of no return. Jesus says it shall not be forgiven him, this age or the age to come. We can state it this way. The unpardonable sin is to fully and finally reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Christ. And beyond that, to slander it as evil or satanic. I'll say that again. The unpardonable sin is to fully 
and finally reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Christ, that he is the Son of God. And beyond that, to slander it as satanic. It's to call evil good and good evil in the worst way. Now, just, just to restate this, it's often helpful to hear several definitions of something to crystallize it in your mind. So I want to draw on a few commentators and, and theologians who captured the essence of this unpardonable sin just to help you round this out. So listen to this. One commentator, Doriani, summed up blasphemy against the Spirit as follows. He said, it is, quote, the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil, despite full knowledge of his work and in the face of the Spirit's full testimony of him, end quote. You also have the classic John Calvin, who colorfully said this, quote, those persons sin and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit who maliciously turn into his dishonor the perfections of God, which have been revealed to him by the Spirit, in which his glory ought to be celebrated, and who, with Satan, their leader, are avowed enemies of the glory of God. We need not then wonder if for such sacrilege there is no hope for pardon, for they must be desperate who turn the only medicine of salvation into a deadly venom, end quote. And lastly, how about R.C. Sproul for just a succinct definition? The unpardonable sin is, quote, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by blaspheming against Christ after the Spirit has revealed to a person that Jesus is the Son of God, end quote. Now, technically we could finish. We've answered the big question, but I want to ask a few more questions here again to, to take a little bit further your understanding of what this sin is and the nature of God's forgiveness. So a few bonus questions. Number six, what makes blasphemy against the Spirit unforgivable? Why is this unforgivable? Okay, it's bad, but why is it unforgivable? In other words, where, where is the limit on God's forgiveness being placed? We would say that it's not a limit on his power or his mercy or his ability to forgive. God's already proven he, he can forgive anything. Any sin we can imagine can be forgiven. But in the text, Jesus is saying that God will not forgive. He says, verse 32, not that God can't forgive him as if he's bound, but that God shall not forgive this person. They will not be forgiven. No one deserves God's forgiveness. That's why it's called mercy. And we cherish that mercy where he pardons the guilty. And we're all guilty. But there are different categories of guilt. There are different degrees of guilt. And so what we have described here is it's a category of the lost who are just handed over to extreme hardness of heart. And Jesus is saying, for those who have reached this final category, God will never forgive them. He will never choose freely to forgive them and set his grace upon them. Again, to be clear, all of us, all of us at birth, we enter this category of sinner. We're all in the category of sinner under God's judgment. Some go into more active categories, murderer, thief, adulterer, serial killer. But there's no category of sinner you can think of that's unforgivable. God forgives them all, or he can what this is saying is if a person makes it this far into this last category, 
of hardened rejection and blasphemy against the Spirit. I mean, it means they've blown past layer after layer of common grace and the Spirit's testimony. They put themselves into this category of hardened hatred of the Spirit's light. And so Christ is basically saying God will give them no more light. They will never find his special grace that opens blind eyes. They're doomed. They're left to his justice forevermore. You can see how the unpardonable sin is related to hardness of heart. Or if you remember, this is, this is a heart-level condition, right? I think we find a fitting paradigm for this in Pharaoh. God testified to him of his power through various signs and wonders. Like, here's the proof. There is a God. He's powerful. You should listen to him. But he refused. He would not bow the knee and repent. And as a result, Exodus says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, making it impossible for him to repent. And he did that, though, by just withholding his special grace. As Exodus also says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He refused the light and chose the darkness. And God handed him right over to the darkness and a depraved mind forever, where it became no longer possible for him to repent. Look, we understand God's grace is so strong, he, he can break any stone. There's no hardened heart he doesn't have the power to break. But Jesus is telling us that in this text that for people in this category, God will never do so. He will never swing the hammer and soften those who are, become this hardened. Calvin adds, quote, This is how God punishes contempt of his grace, by hardening the hearts of the reprobate, so that they never have any desire toward repentance, end quote. In the end, for such people, the responsibility for their hardness, their rejection, and their judgment rests with them. Classic commentator Hendrickson nails it a little bit longer, but listen to this when he says, quote, Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there's hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. End quote. And this very much does correlate to 1 John 5, the sin unto death. But we'll save that passage for another time. We need to pile on very difficult passages. Now, in our text, look at verse 32 again. Jesus doubles down on the unforgivable nature of this hardened heart condition, where he says, verse 32, that this sin will not be forgiven, neither in this age or the age to come. This is not suggesting that some people find forgiveness after death. No, Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. But Jesus here is simply speaking emphatically as if to say, not now, not ever will these people in this category find God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. They've basically entered God's eternal judgment before death. Now, I know this is all a lot, quite heavy, but hopefully this study is helping you make sense of this teaching. Jesus said it. We need to understand what it means, the sin that is not to be forgiven. 
I think a few final questions here will drive this home, bringing it to the present. Number seven, can blasphemy against the Spirit be committed today? Can blasphemy against the Spirit be committed today? As some have said, this is only possible in the day of Christ. Can it still happen? We've learned that blasphemy against the Spirit is slandering as evil or satanic. The clear testimony of the Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, shouldn't we ask, does the Spirit still testify of Jesus today? Well, the answer will be yes. We kind of have to say blasphemy against the Spirit is still possible today, but it's different because the Spirit testifies different today. Jesus is not walking around doing miracles. So that, that outer testimony by sight is no more. But John, over in 1 John 5, 6, he certainly believed that the Spirit still testifies Jesus is the Christ. That's what he said. Just how so? How does the Spirit testify in this age? No longer through visible signs and wonders, but rather through the Word of God, which is actually a greater sign. Jesus himself certainly viewed the Scriptures as more authoritative than signs and wonders. It's a higher sign, the Scriptures. So the Spirit still testifies through the same word that he inspired. So it's safe to say this, that for people who are ignorant of the Scriptures, it is not possible for them to blaspheme the Holy Spirit as Jesus defined. In ignorance, they might say all sorts of bad things about the Spirit, but they're in ignorance. Without the testimony of the Scriptures, they're not going to go this far. They can be lost. They can be hardened. That's not the same thing as speaking evil of the Spirit's testimony of Jesus. For blasphemy against the Spirit to happen today, for a person to go that far, it would require them to know the Scriptures very well. This would be a person who has read the Bible, knows it well. And in the Word, they receive this clear testimony that Jesus, he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. They witness God's special revelation You can add that the Spirit illumined their mind to a degree, giving them a a type of enlightenment, stopping short of new birth, where they understood the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the gospel, its implications. The Spirit convicted them of their sin and their guilt. This is a person who, in the words, saw as clear as day, Jesus is the light of the world. But they rejected it. They didn't want it. They didn't want Christ They wanted to keep their sin, and so they rejected him in full knowledge. You stop right there, once again, we have unbelief, hardness of heart, rejection. That's forgivable. That's that's not unforgivable. God sometimes breaks someone who's that far gone, right? But a person crosses the line when beyond rejection, they settle into hatred and slander, blaspheming the testimony of the Spirit. They call good evil, as if the Son of God might as well be the devil. They make Christ really an antichrist. They purposely misjudge the work of Jesus to be demonic and evil, even in the face of the Spirit's clear testimony otherwise. And they're not speaking in ignorance. They know full well what they're saying. This would express a level of hardness that Jesus says is beyond forgiveness. And we would have to conclude, therefore, yes, it's possible, but this still can happen today.
how do you really know for sure when someone's crossed that line, though? A couple more. Question number eight. How can you tell when someone has committed blasphemy against the Spirit? Trying to get a little more practical here, especially as a young pastor. I got this question so many times by college students wondering if they had crossed the line. Have they done this? How can you tell when someone has committed blasphemy against the Spirit? And in a sense, it's difficult to tell when someone has crossed the line. You should be very careful to declare someone has committed the unpardonable sin and has reached the point of no return. Almost sometimes impossible for us to say, why is that? Because we can't see someone's heart. Remember, this is a heart-level condition. Remember, blasphemy against the Spirit It's not just the same thing as hardness of heart. There are, thankfully in God's grace, plenty of hardened sinners who end up being softened, broken, and made to repent by his mercy and come to believe. They're forgiven. Just look no further than the the Apostle Paul. doesn't get much more hardened in hatred than that. And so look, don't lose hope for all of your unbelieving friends and family members because right now they don't believe in Christ or even hate Christ. And his God's mercy, they can be broken. Keep praying for them. We'll say this, though. It's fair to judge people by their fruit. That's actually what Jesus tells us to do in the very next verse. Remember how he connected this unpardonable sin to a heart condition. How do we gauge someone's heart? Well, look at verse 33. Right after, in the same breath, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and it's fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Familiar teaching, we'll, we'll delve into more later, but the tree is known by its fruit. And specifically, blasphemy against the Spirit manifests itself in the, the bad fruit of slander. Blasphemy. So this is not just someone rejecting the light or even hating the light, but someone spewing slander like swine trampling pearls. This is also to judge the Lord is essentially satanic. As it was described in Isaiah 5.20, Woe! Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And so there might be cases where by the fruit of speech, someone makes it pretty clear how far they, they've gone. Where they're, they're acting, they're speaking just like the Pharisees here. You also see this level of vitriol sometimes come out of apostates. Some people that are raised in the church. They know the Bible well. They know the gospel. They can't claim ignorance. But beyond falling away, some people, they fall away. But beyond falling away, they now like hate the Lord. They hate Christianity and the Bible. They slander the Lord. You could make the case. Some of them have gone too far. There's definitely some correlation here with the warning passages of Hebrews. You might remember these. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, I will read for you. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then... Have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. If you have described here a person who knows the truth, they know the Bible, 
They know the gospel. They know the word. They've received the convicting work of the Spirit. Stopping short of new birth, the Spirit has brought a type of testimony or enlightenment to their minds. But in full knowledge, they reject. They don't want it. They turn away. Hebrews says, such a person then is lost forever. You see, there is a line crossed only by the extreme hardened of heart where God effectively now takes away the Spirit's testimony, just leaving a person to the outer darkness forever. The only one that can open blind eyes is the Spirit to bring people to life. And if God takes them away, that person is now without hope forevermore. But we need to say that more often than not, we, us, we're not God. We, we can rarely tell if someone has really crossed that line because we just can't see their heart. We're dealing with imperfect knowledge. That's why we're not the judge. Like, did this person reject in full knowledge? I don't know. Did they acknowledge the Spirit's testimony but now scorn it? I, I can't tell. It's often fruitless to wonder if a person has gone too far. And I must tell you, it's not the point of these passages. These passages, Matthew, Hebrews, 1 John, they're warning passages, not condemning passages. They're given for believers. Not so that we can go around pointing the finger at the lost, as if it's up to us to judge and condemn them as having gone too far. These passages are given that we might judge ourselves, that we not go astray or too far. Just like Hebrews says elsewhere, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, talking to us, this is all for us believers. It says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm to the end. We need to know, well, our God is a just judge. We are great sinners. We are in all sorts of category of sinner. We should be under his just judgment. But our only escape, our only hope is the ark of Christ. And so let us take care that we are firmly in Christ, not just now. For the rest of our lives, we need to persevere in Christ firm to the end. And when it comes to other people, we should be far less concerned with trying to determine or declare if someone has crossed the line, gone too far. And instead, just carry forward the warning in love, don't go too far. Repent, turn to Christ. Again, we're mostly dealing with imperfect knowledge of this person's life, of their heart. And so if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of mercy and compassion and grace. We trust God to judge. He has perfect knowledge. He always does what is right. As for you, you keep praying for your lost, hardened loved ones. You keep witnessing Christ to them and trust God. And we'll finish now with question number nine. Can believers commit blasphemy against the Spirit? Can believers commit blasphemy against the Spirit? We have to finish and include this question. Even though at this point, the, the answer should be totally obvious to you, I hope. The answer is no, of course not. It's not even possible by definition, but it's worth just addressing. I don't know, at least in my experience, this question has come up so much among newer believers. Many have been made fearful because they hear this, this concept, this category, 
an unpardonable sin, but they have no biblical explanation of it. And it just leads them to fear, like, that's scary. Have I, have I done this? They wonder if they've committed it. But no, no professing believer is slandering the Spirit, believing the testimony of Jesus is demonic. Anyone gets that far, they're, they're no longer a professing believer. They're a long-gone, hardened apostate at that point who now hates God. But look, anytime you encounter someone who is worried they may have committed the unpardonable sin, that very worry is proof they have not. When someone reaches this point of no return, like they're already so hardened, they don't worry about judgment at all. They don't care. They've become smug, arrogant, and proud. But the fact that a person cares about any sin at all is all the proof you need. They've not gone too far. They're not unpardonable. They've not reached this point of no return. J.C. Ryle said it best, quote, Those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it, end quote. As a Christian, you may wrestle with sin in a big way, and sometimes you lose. You go on a losing streak. It's a flesh remains. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But even though as believers, we, we don't have a license to sin. In fact, now we hate our sin. It is very good for us to remember all of our sins are forgivable. In fact, beyond that, in Christ, that they are forgiven. We don't want to skip over the indirect, but like massive, secret good news in this text. I know we've been paying all of our attention to the warning side, because we need to get this one right. But did this little statement fly too far under the radar for you? Verse 31, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. What if you just stop there? Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Like, that's pretty good news. Yeah, we have this one exception, this category of those hardened and blasphemy, and blasphemy but, but don't downplay the, the extent and the magnitude, the breadth and the depth of God's forgiveness. This means that murderers, thieves, liars, the sexually immoral, they all can be forgiven. The proud, the angry, the impatient, the lustful, the selfish, they all can be forgiven. Think of all the wrongs you have done in your life and all the people you have hurt. Think of the guilt and the shame you still carry around. You should know the good news is that because of Christ, you're actually not supposed to carry it around anymore. He's taken it away. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, some favorite verses it says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In Christ, you're not meant to wonder if you've been forgiven or can you be forgiven now, you're meant to know, by faith, by his finished work, you already have been forgiven. God's smile never departs from you if you are in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this is what you're missing out on. You'll never find true hope or peace or assurance or security outside of Christ. And even if you never commit this unpardonable sin, it's still true that if you die without repentance and faith in Christ, well, at that point, all your sins become unpardonable. 
all that's left at that point is judgment. So heed the warning in love while it still stands, Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And for us here as believers, every time we hear any of these warnings, we should take them to heart. They're never meant to turn us to fear. They're always meant to drive us to even greater faith in Christ because he's the one who has pardoned all of our sins. He's our only hope. We know the book of Hebrews issues us some of the strongest warnings, but it also leaves us with some of the most powerful words of peace. And so I think that it's fitting to close by recalling just the great confidence we have and should have in Christ, having already received his pardon by grace. And so we are told, commanded even, Hebrews 4, 16, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and help, or in grace to help in a time of need. So let us always draw near, knowing we're not meant to live in fear of judgment anymore as believers in Christ, but in love, as his perfect love casts out that fear. Let's draw near continually in confidence in him. Let's pray together. Our God who is in heaven, we, we thank you this morning for your word. Though deep, it is still clear and true and powerful, giving us what we need to know you. We thank you even for the warning of sin and judgment. That does not lead us to fear, but it leads us to greater faith and rejoicing. Yet, cautions us to walk wisely, walk well before you. But we were reminded of Christ the Savior this morning, above all. Though we've, we've dissected some of his words, sometimes we need to do that. May we step back and remember the good news that comes with it, that you sent this Savior, God the Son, to take on flesh, to accomplish our redemption. None of our sins needed to be forgiven, should have been forgivable. It's only by your great mercy that you made us alive, called us to yourself, opened our eyes, and that we could behold the Savior who died on the cross, paid the full penalty of all of our sins, that he might rise again and grant us now free pardon. This is good news. I pray we heed it, we love it, we follow the Savior. Any here who have not, that you indeed this morning send the Spirit to open blind eyes, to convict them of sin. They behold the clear testimony of this Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. He's the Son of God and God the Son, their only hope for their sins, which come with just judgment as they turn to him and they find the joy that, that we get to know and have of total forgiveness. That gives us no license to sin, Lord, but now you've made it so we, we hate sin. We love you. As we still wrestle with the flesh, though, may it always give us greater confidence in, in Christ. He is, as we sang this morning, our only hope in life and death. And may we cling to him, draw near to him each and every day more and more until we see him free from sin forevermore. Thank you for your great grace and mercy that has pardoned us. We give all glory to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.